On today's episode, I'm joined by a Yale philosopher and author of major works, including How Fascism Works and How Propaganda Works. He goes into detail about the ways in which free speech may be incompatible with democracy, explains how propagandists manipulate language to appeal to man's irrational mind, and reveals the risks of working in academia during a tumultuous political climate. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Professor Jason Stanley and this is uncovering the truth. Professor Stanley, I wanted to start out with perhaps an unconventional question, but what are some of the flaws of liberal democracy? Because it seems to me that there's a lot of people who are willing to surrender it. And secondly, if democracy were were such an ideal government, how could it let itself get to this inflection point where it might end? So, Let's start out first by by emphasizing that there's never been a democratic political theorist in the multi-millennium history of democratic political philosophy who would say that you could have a liberal democracy when economic and social inequalities are so large. So no one would say you could have a liberal democracy under these circumstances. No one could say you could have a democracy under these circumstances. Aristotle's argument for democracy is that it wouldn't democracies wouldn't allow uh, social inequalities and economic inequalities to grow so large. Uh, wow. uh, so uh, you know, Rousseau says democracies are all about equality. They don't allow resentments to build. Uh, you know, large inequalities are incompatible with democracy. So we're in a situation mm. where the social and economic realities preclude the culture of democracy. They breed resentments and hatred. So, and resentments and hatred are what fuel anti-democratic movements, be they fascist or other kinds of tyrannies. Um, so if you go back to Plato, in, in the Republic, book eight of the, of the Republic, Plato argues that democracy leads straightforwardly to tyranny. Here's Plato's mm-hmm. argument. Plato's argument is that democracy allows, is based on liberty. So it allows everyone to run for office. And mm-hmm. that means that people who are entirely unsuited to run for office will run for office. And those people will lie They'll set people against each other. They'll represent themselves as the people's protector, as Plato, as Socrates puts it, and and uh, and create revenge and anger and present themselves as say say there's an internal enemy and you need me to protect you. And so and th- and this so so Plato says democracy allows very ill-suited people to run for election, who will then lie and use propaganda to win and end democracy. And 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 the answer by democratic political theorists uh, to to Plato is that democracy, by reducing inequalities between people, makes people less resentful and less responsive to the politics of fear and anger. So so in theory here, the democracy should be solving these economic and social inequalities, but clearly. It is not. It is not doing it for enough people, or else there would be an overwhelming coalition 
behind democracy. And I, and another interesting point you brought up there is with Rousseau, how he says it, it allows for grievances and people can air their grievances within a democracy. But I, I would argue right now we've allowed in a certain sense. Now people may say, oh, now you're attacking freedom of speech, but we've allowed too many grievances to be aired and perpetuated from above to the point of it uh, manifesting into violence. And how do you stop that without curtailing the First Amendment? So, so Rousseau says that that uh, people won't be susceptible to resentment and resentment, resentment, grievance in a healthy democratic culture. We don't have a healthy democratic culture. So every democratic political theorist would tell you that democracy voting won't work, democracy won't work because people are going to be really resentful and their either resentment is going to be easily misdirected. Uh, now, what to do under these under these conditions of uh, betrayal, elite betrayal, massive social and economic inequality. Uh, that's a difficult question. Now, right. uh, the 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 issue about the First Amendment, uh, the United States is the only Western, only major democracy, or maybe the only real democracy, the only official democracy that mm -hmm. had such a blanket protection for hate speech. Uh, you know, Canada's first, uh, uh, India's First Amendment uh, bans hate speech. <laughs> Our First <laughs> Amendment allows it. Uh, uh, Canada, it does not seem to me a totalitarian dictatorship, but they have hate speech regulations. I mean, I went there; it did not seem like a totalitarian <laughs> dictatorship. Uh, you know, uh, so uh, so um, so so we're the only country with these very broad free uh, First Amendment protections. Uh, you know, we, 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 lots of speech is illegal, libel is illegal, defamation is illegal. Um, it's the, mm -hmm. the, the core of the way to take down a democracy is exploit its freedoms against itself. Let me read from the first, the quote that begins my 2015 book, How Propaganda Works. Yes. Uh, this will always remain one of the best jokes of democracy, that it gave its deadly enemies the means by which it was destroyed. Joseph Goebbels, Reich Minister of Propaganda, he was the Nazi propaganda minister. And what he meant there was freedom of speech. So this is what wow. I do in this book is, is I argue that the question of democracy, the classic 2000 plus year old question of democracy is how can freedom, full freedom of speech coexist with the stability of democracy since Democracy, as Plato points out, allows anyone to run for office. Uh, it allows the people who run to people who are least suited to run for office will be most given to lying and propagandizing. And lying and propagandizing takes down democracy. And, and oh, wow, there's a lot, lot to unpack there. But it seems to me that you, as a a pure political dark strategist, you would be more inclined to spread disinformation, more inclined to spread propaganda simply because it's just easier to me. And if there's no consequences for it, in other words, and even to bring up Joseph Goebbels, as you mentioned in your book, How Propaganda Works, what could, let's say even in 1930s Germany, what could German citizens and them have done in order 
to stop the Nazis and Adolf Hitler from rising. It, it seems like it was an inevitable process that cannot be stopped in a democracy. And that's the fear I think many have. Well, that's what that's why the first Western major Western philosophical discussion of democracy in, in Plato's Republic, the founding document of Western philosophy, attacks democracy for saying it has this paradox at its heart. So what we need to see is we're not going to solve it now. This is this is this is democracy is the best system. Uh, it is the most it, it is but it is a very fragile system and it contains a paradox at its core. The paradox mm -hmm. at its core uh, is is that it allows for uh, it allows anyone to run for office and scoundrels yeah. will run for office and lie. <laughs> and, and that will destroy <laughs> democracy. And that is why Plato, e e even, even Rousseau in the social contract, Rousseau, the great theorist, modern theorist of democracy, mm -hmm. says in the social contract, uh, you know, uh, he, he, he knows that the system he's defending, democracy, is lampooned and ridiculed by political theorists. Uh, because I, I have the quote in here, he says, you know, yeah, this is People lampoon and and mock this idea because um, I, I I I can't find it now. But uh, people <laughs> lampoon and mock this idea because they they say a wizard with words will simply drag the masses along. Uh, but Rousseau yeah. describes a system whereby there's general social equality. People don't feel resentment, so they don't fall for the lies. The problem is we have a social and material reality that makes people filled with fear, anxiety, and resentment. So, so in other words, would you, would you argue then that there, there needs to be certain existing conditions for a democracy to fall? For, for example, inflation, a, a war going on, um, which again, I get sp spurs racism, it spurs violence, it, it spurs economic insecurity. And then if you can get the population in that state of mind, well, they're, they're like putty. They, they need to do whatever they can for their own survival. So it, it, what I'm asking here is, does a fascist exploit, can a fascist always exploit a democratic system? Or do there need to be external conditions for them to succeed? Which I would argue we do have right now, not just in America, but across the world. So fascists, there will always be a base of support for a fascist social and political movement or an anti-democratic movement with fascist elements. Uh, but for it to succeed, it's got to win over conservatives. Uh, it, it's got to win over social conservatives. It's got to win over big business. The conditions under which mm. it wins over social conservatives and big business, people, it has to win over a lot of people who would deny that they were fascists. Uh, so so mm. fascism can't win unless it can win over a lot of people who are like, I'm not a fascist, but that's better than the other party. Uh. So that's the situation you need. So you need enough resentment, anger, fear, cultural change, fear of cultural change, just underlying, uh, you know, failures of elites, uh, uh, which we've had in abundance from the financial crisis and the Iraq war backwards, uh, mm. failures of elites. Uh, you need uh, you, you need for people to back the fascist movement, people to say we need radical change. So uh, so there's two kinds of when you have like mass elite failure, as we've seen, you can either get massive social change that is positive 
or massive social change that is negative. Uh, and history shows that generally massive social change that is negative wins. Uh, and uh, oh. people vote for that. <laughs> the, yeah, uh, the, they... so, so, on, so, under, so as you say, we, we have these conditions that incentivize, that get people to think they just wanna break the system apart. You need you need several you need several groups voting for fascists. It's very clear in, in Western Europe where communists are voting for fascists, former communists are voting for fascists. That that you need people who think you need social conservatives. You tell the social conservatives, the liberals and leftists are monsters, Satanists, they're gonna make your children gay, etc. So you yep. win over social conservatives. You win over the Christian right, or the even uh, you, you win over big business. You tell them we're going to keep the oil flowing, we're going to smash the unions, uh, <laughs> and then and then you win over crucially the disaffected voters who feel that the system is broken and pointless, and at least wow. they get someone someone's telling them correctly. Trump correctly told people the system is broken, broken and pointless. Yes, he was right on that. And so mm -hmm. he wins over voters who get that message. Wow. And so that that that's a lot of offers a lot of clarification. And I actually have uh, this brings me to another point because I, you know, one of my Hispanic friends at UCLA, he's a Republican. And he told me, he said, the big problem with the left, quote unquote left, is like he said that they don't acknowledge that there is a shift in our culture, whereas only the right is willing to point this out. And I, I try to remain as unbiased as I can, but I just wanted to bring this question to you. Is there, is there any truth to the fact that, is there something the left needs to be doing more of to combat the, this movement? Or is this just, again, propaganda about culture shifting as we see with transgenderism? Is that, is that just winning over the truth? Or are they right? To some I think extent? I think that there is a lot more acceptance of LGBT. Uh, there is there there is more uh, white men are not getting a hundred percent of things. They're getting ninety percent of things. You know, so so <laughs> that is that can easily be represented as cultural change. There is more immigration uh, into countries like Sweden. Like so, with Sweden, you can't really tell the narrative of. Uh, you know, institutional failure, because Sweden is a very efficient government that hasn't had institutional failure. But the fact that Sweden now has the Sweden Democrats as their second largest party in a parliamentary, parliamentary system and in government means that, you know, the, the cultural change message is powerful. Uh, it's not just economic anxiety. Uh, and that idea right. that, that so, so Sweden has many more immigrants, uh, had many more Swedes of of, of non-Swedish background, uh, and that is resonates with a harshly racist uh, uh, political campaign. The Sweden Democrats really are the Swedish Nazis. They're descended from the Swedish Nazis. Yes. So so uh, so you do have cultural change. I think that it's generational. So I think that if you look mm -hmm. at people are like, oh, there's a you know, the attitudes towards gender are, are uh, you know, there's a social contagion among the youth. Well, that's what a social movement looks like. That's what social change looks like. Yeah. Social change looks like social contagion. <laughs> it looks right. like 
a, a mass movement of people who are like, okay, the traditional gender binary is not necessarily something we accept. And that's going to get a vicious, violent reaction from older generations. And this has always happened. It, it has happened with, now in, in the United States in particular, we also have race. Uh, I mean, in many countries, race, obviously, I just was just talking about Sweden, so in the United States, but we have yeah, a very yeah. structure here with race where we have a, so we, we have a group, Black Americans, who no one would deny are Americans. That's different in Europe, where people deny that non-whites are even European. But here we have this group, African Americans, that are supposed to be traditionally subordinate. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and the understanding, the social change is understanding how much of white privilege has depended on subordinating and exploiting this group and incarcerating this group. How many, I mean, Florida would never have a Republican governor or senators if they allowed the one million uh, former felons in that state to vote, which is mostly a racialized, which is largely a racialized targeting. Um, so 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 we have we have a uh we have this structure in the United States where people are being asked to look at the history of the United States in a frank and clear way and that's contributing to this cultural backlash it's a white backlash frankly uh mm -hmm. it seems to be a white backlash um and and it, again but i will say though this is for the first time that uh, we have, and I speaking as a Jewish man, there are many Jews who are aligning with the party that is in the same tent with Nazis. There are Black Americans who are now entering the party who are the descendants of the KKK. And we have Hispanics who are lining up with the party who's essentially you know, espousing build the wall rhetoric. So there has to be something that the other side is offering them that the liberals are not offering because I cannot fathom in my mind that it is all just propaganda. And I'm sorry, I keep hammering the same question, but I think this is what is really just so confusing and no. bewildering about this. Several time. Things. The Democrats have not delivered for the, the black voters who support for many black voters who supported them. Defund the police became, became let's give the police much more. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's double down. Uh, 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 so, so the Democrats have been very disappointing. Um, the Democrats have, the 90s, Clinton was one of the most, the Clinton era was one of those monstrous, uh, you know, racist campaigning, ending welfare as we know it, all of that. Uh, so, mm. uh, so it's understandable that Black voters would, would express um, uh, 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 express some some up, 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 some conflicted feelings about the Democratic Party, which is right. not delivered. The Democratic Party has been in 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 hock to uh, corporate elite, just like the Republican Party. So yeah. the idea is something like when you see your team. When I see, I'm a, I'm I'm a, you know, I'm a New York Knicks fan, sadly, and I'm a certain. <laughs> Syracuse basketball fan. When I see my team lose, mm -hmm. sometimes I want them to lose by a lot. <laughs> That's right. There's that feeling like, okay, just get crushed. Uh, yeah, so yeah. Disappointed you. Get the trades so, going. Yeah. Right. There's also wow, Christian nationalism happening. And Christian nationalism, let's let's be clear, Christian nationalism is white Christian nationalism. But it's but via patriarchy, 
it brings a lot of people in. A lot of people who are not white benefit from patriarchy. These patriarchal, uh, uh, patriarchal kinds of politics draw a broad base in, uh, even though ultimately it's patriarchal politics in the United States that it's in the service that's in the service of whiteness. Um, uh, you know, uh, many. Mm. Uh, so, so, uh, so, uh, so also, yes, it's whiteness. Uh, many of my fellow Jewish people feel we've got whiteness here. Well, let's not sacrifice. Like if we can come in for the wow. Republicans and, and share in racism, we've got, you know, we can be white here. Uh, you know, uh, my parents are Holocaust survivors. This is a message that they were kind of clear about. You know, as James Baldwin said, and Negroes are anti-Semitic because they're anti-white. He's like, you think you share our, uh, you think you know us better because you share our history of oppression, but we're more angry at you because we know you know what we're going through and you're glad not to be us. So, wow. uh, so that's the history I grew up with, 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 and that's a lot of Jewish people like we had it hard. Why can't they? But, but I think a lot of, so, so there's that buying into whiteness and buying into whiteness can also appeal to black people. It can appeal to, uh, to it can, they, they say, hey, I can be white by buying into this thing that black people are lazy, et cetera. That's what whiteness is. And I can make my family white by, by going this way. It's a better strategy for my family. So you've got a wow. lot of things going on. You've got Christian nationalism. You've got completely understandable disgruntlement with the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. uh, you've, got, you've got patriarchy and you've got whiteness. Uh, so, uh, so you, so you, so you have, you have a lot of, you have this idea that you're, if you're not a Republican, you're not a real man. That's going to appeal to a yeah. lot, of, a lot of people, that kind of politics. Uh, and there's also, there's also the mm -hmm. fear, the LGBT scapegoating is huge. That's worldwide. And we see it here and that's going to go across racial categories. It's just going to be true that when you scapegoat 10% of people that are of every race and of every race and gender, you're mm -hmm. gonna get a cross-racial coalition who's gonna be like, I too am afraid that my child is gonna be exposed to the idea that it's normal to be in a same-sex relationship. I, I that to me, it blows me away that that people believe that you can be converted from education to change your sexuality. That, that's the message they're sending. And I'm surprised it's resonating. But then again, yeah, you actually wrote an op-ed, 100 Years of Fascism. I think you published it maybe last week. And you brought up that in Nazi Germany, in fact, one of the first libraries that they burned down was one that contained books where there was free gender expression. So this may surprise the audience. I know it surprised me that this new uh, war against sexual freedom is not a new war. It's just a, a resurgence of the same old uh, kerosene to the match. Now, the Nazis, one of the principal Nazi propaganda targets was a man named Magnus Hirschfeld, who ran the gender, the, the, the enormous, the Institute for Sexual Wissenschaft that you're referring to in Berlin that was burned down by the Nazis in 1933. Uh, and Magnus Hirschfeld was a gay Jewish man. And the Institute for Sexuelle Wissenschaft, Sex Sexuelle Wissenschaft uh, studied uh, gender transition. It studied gender fluidity. And it had an enormous archive of photos documenting the fluidity of gender right. and books about it. 
So it wasn't that he was gay. It wasn't just that he was gay. It's that he was challenging the gender binary. Uh, and that's something that, you know, ideology, as Imani Perry has said, is the, it, I mean, uh, 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 patriarchy, as Imani Perry has said, is the first ideology. It's the original ideology. And mm. so when you, so, you know, when you, marry yourself to patriarchy. When a political movement marries itself to the defense of patriarchy, it's very powerful. And that's what the Nazis did very openly. They targeted, they targeted a gay Jew to, to, to uh, a gay intellectual Jew so they could get everything together, the minorities, the, the religious minorities, they're the non-whites who they felt were non-white mm -hmm. in Germany. Uh, the LGBT and the intellectuals. They can put them all together and he, it's in Berlin, so the cities, and say, look at what's happening. The intellectuals are promoting LGBT, the intellectual minorities are promoting LGBT in the cities. And, uh, and that, that wow. could be a focus of their, of their campaign. Uh, and that's what, you know, that, that is, you know, that's, that's, you know, there was at that time there were still gay male Nazis, but they were not challenging the gender binary. They were very macho men. <laughs> Maybe in uh, the closet. Like yeah, that, that's very interesting. And and speaking of this, perhaps I want to shift over again more about you're the propaganda expert with your book, How Propaganda Works. And I'm just curious from my perspective, what is the difference between what we call propaganda and just modern day advertising in well, corporations or businesses? Well, you can't really uh, you can't really separate um, advertising uh, from from propaganda. Their roots were the same in many languages. It's the same word. Uh, so so <sighs> propaganda, you know. Uh, the, the the father of public relations, Bernays is both the father of propaganda and the father of public relations, you know, <laughs> so so these are not, you know, uh, you know, I, I uh, propaganda um, in how propaganda works. I'm not here selling how propaganda works because every dime goes to charity. None of it goes to my kids education, uh, but, <laughs> uh, but it all goes to the prison policy initiative. But uh, but oh, wow. uh, but in it, I divide advertising from from propaganda. Just technically, I say propaganda is about political ideals, whereas advertising is about aesthetic ideals. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be about political ideals. But hmm. propaganda and advertising, there are many languages in which they're the same word. Uh, they the people. If you're reading, you know, any scholar of advertising is going to be also reading the same scholarship. That's the scholarship of propaganda, Bernays, uh, Lippmann. So the formation of, of public opinion. Um, so these are these are the same, one you're selling a social movement or a political leader, the other you're selling a car. Wow, and so to me, it seems that uh, what they have most in common, propaganda advertising, which are one and the same, is their manipulation of language. So for, for example, real quick, I know I had the author of Dope Sick on the podcast a few weeks back, and we talked about how uh, OxyContin, they, they came up with the term pseudo addiction to treat a pseudo, so like you're not really addicted, you're just suffering from pain and you need more OxyContin. So when I heard that, and then I, I come across your work, I'm like, I got to ask him about this, how important language is in the propagandist's toolbox. Well, all my, all my work is on language. 
I'm a philosopher of language and a linguist. So that's why I came into the topic of propaganda and started working on it in 2010, 2011. Uh, and um, my my first ever New York Times piece in 2011 was about birtherism. <laughs> oh. So, so uh, but so propaganda is about symbols. It can take place with language. It can take place with images. It can take place with movies. It can take place in the form of music. So uh, so propaganda is about symbolic manipulation. Uh, now we talked about the relationship of propaganda and, and and advertising. They're they're so close as to be hard hard to be disentangled. Um, mm -hmm. but, but with one ideal, I talked about propaganda involves political ideals, but masculinity is very crucial as a manipulative trick in both, right? We mm -hmm. use masculinity in advertising all the time, and we use masculinity in politics all the time. Uh, so, yeah, so yeah. that's what masculinity is a huge draw and explains why people vote the way they do, you know, um. Mm -hmm. But it also explains why people buy the products they do. So masculinity yeah. is an ideal that is very attractive for people and is exploited by anyone who needs exploiting. And yes, language being the most uh, pervasive symbolic system that humans use and the distinctive symbolic system that human, humans use is the major vehicle for propaganda, of course. Uh, yeah. Newt, Newt Gingrich... Um, I named a chapter on how propaganda works uh, after a, a, um, a memo by Newt Gingrich called Language, a Mechanism of Control that he, that he, uh, that he sent out to, uh, to the Republican congressman in, I believe, uh, 1994. Uh, uh, so, and in it, uh, he, uh, right, here we are, Language, yeah. a Mechanism of Control. Uh, Gingrich. Newt Gingrich, a key mechanism of control. Language, a key mechanism of control. Newt Gingrich's 1996 Go Pack memo. Um, so, uh, so, so, uh, in it, he had optimistic governing words. Uh, so that he and he said uh, contrasting words. So call your, uh, you know, liberal lie, obsolete, pathetic, uh, punish poor selfish, decay, destructive, uh, ideological, unionized. <laughs> well, it's these words that are just so, they just work so well, especially when you talk about law and order or lawlessness or yeah. corruption, the swamp. And it gets me even, it just, I'm like, man, I mean, it's, it's impound, it, it, it evokes some sort of emotion where, and I guess here's my next question for you. Should the truth tellers, whether you want to call them the, the Democrats, which <laughs> they're not all great, but should the moral side begin to use these sorts of propaganda tactics to combat the propaganda propagandists, or does that go against the very notion of being a moral leader? So what do you do when democracy breaks down, when reality breaks down, when there's no... Um, there's no legitimacy to, you know, the elites have lost legitimacy. Uh, people are running correctly. Trump was running correctly against the brokenness of the system. But I mean, what a person to run against the brokenness. Of the <laughs> so so uh, so what's the counter strategy here? Uh, it's a really difficult question. Um, I don't know if I know. I mean, I think it's impossible not to use, pro not to, not, you know, there's no such thing as like, 
using language that is non-emotional. All language right. evokes emotion. When I when I say professor, some people have nice memories, some people have violent reactions. When I say office worker, uh, that evokes emotions. When I say cat, that evokes emotions. Take the distinction between dog and canine. Those yeah. evoke very different emotions. So you cannot use language in, an, in a way that does not evoke emotion, that does not evoke... So, so you cannot use language in any kind of purely neutral way. That is nonsensical. Mm -hmm. um, so, but but lying, you know, you shouldn't, I don't think you, um, I mean, propaganda is not just lies. It's also the strategic omission of truths. So I, you know, you can, I could yeah. say some, there are green-eyed terrorists, the green-eyed, the, the terrorists with green eyes. And, you know, you could raise fear of people with green eyes by pointing out correctly that there are some <laughs> green-eyed terrorists. Um, but, uh, but, uh, but if you say, um, so, you, and so that's used forever in the Republican and the uh, Democrat in both parties, when they're demagoguing about crime, they'll talk about how black, there's a crime problem in black American communities, but they won't link it to a poverty problem <laughs> or yeah, an incarceration right. problem. If you incarcerate people's parents, you raise the probability that they will be engaged in crime. So if you have, you know, poverty leads to crime. So without mentioning poverty, without mentioning incarceration, without mentioning broken schools, you're not addressing crime. So, um, so, mm. so I think, you know, I, I don't know what's politically most useful. Um, I think I think one thing there are some techniques that you can use. You can shift the conversation. So the Republicans do this all the time. Whenever we're talking about justice, Social Security, Medicare, they shift it to crime because crime is code for race. And so it's code for a bundle of things. And safety, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you sh they shift the conversation. Vashla Weaver has called this the process of front lash, where the, the Republicans slashed social services, knowing that will lead to an upsurge in crime under Nixon. Uh, and mm -hmm. then, and then, uh, so, so you can shift the conversation. You can shift the, you know, the, the Democrats unfortunately fell right into the Republican trap in this midterms. They started talking about crime on January 6th, thinking that they could win on the crime discourse, but they should have shifted. They should have shifted the discourse because the crime discourse isn't really the crime district discourse we're it's not even living, real right we're living in close to historically unparalleled low levels of violent crime they're <laughs> higher than in the lowest levels from 2010 to 2015 but they're vastly better than other previous eras so yeah right, you can't yeah you can't ignore you can't fuel the flame but you also can't ignore it or it grows right and again right this is where we are i think with um with Twitter here, maybe I want to ask you just one more question after this, but especially with Twitter now where we have essentially unregulated free speech, hate speech, disinformation, information, uh, I'm just predicting I'm that, that it's going to be impossible for people who aren't uh, that knowledgeable about politics, which is the majority of Americans, to disseminate fact or fiction, especially when the owner themselves is publishing fake news articles. So where do you see the future of democracy? Is Twitter that important? Or is this just a, another platform where it's no different than the others? Well, more generally, what you're asking about is how do we preserve a healthy information space required yeah, for democracy? Yes. Democracy requires a healthy information space because it requires people to be able to track reality. 
If you can't track reality, then nobody agrees and they're just looking for a leader figure, a strong, it's all about power and winning. So when it's all about power and winning, it's not about the ideal of democracy, which is deliberating about what to do. So okay. you destroy a common information space. If you want to take out democracy, you want to destroy a common, common information space. What the Russian uh, uh, the Russians perfected was this idea of destroying an information space by opening it up completely. Oh, that's what RT did to lead in to you. You have Ooh. people saying true things and you have people saying just completely crazy things. So then nobody knows what's true anymore. And when nobody knows what's true anymore, all there is is the enemy and your team. And then when there's just the enemy and your team, it's not a group of people deciding what to do. It's just about creating a one party state, maybe even under one leader. Wow, that's quite illuminating there. Yes, if you can eliminate facts and the truth, then it just comes down to a war, essentially. Exactly. Who's stronger? Who's louder? And uh, so, Professor Stanley, one of the things I admire is the fact that you are a professor, yet you've published books such as How Fascism Works, which is your latest one, and then How Propaganda Works. You constantly write opinion editorials, and you're very vocal about your, your political stance. And so I'm just curious because I, as a student at UCLA, I, I got to tell, I'll be honest here with my listeners. I'm, I'm incredibly disappointed that it seems to me the professors are taking a very neutral stance during these times. Now, I understand there's a lot of fear of, you don't, you don't want them to espouse their political beliefs, but we, we've reached a point where, don't you think that professors or academia needs to be a little more vocal about the threats going on? Uh, but at the same time, if they do that, then 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 they're crossing some sort of line that's been drawn. And, and it's a very tough position for professors, I'll say. They're in a terrible position. Yeah, we've done a terrible job of uh, defending our, uh, our profession. Uh, we first al allowed the neoliberal corporate, uh, corp corporate mentality into academia to destroy tenure tenure track lines and replace it by, by uh, adjuncts who, who have no job security, who don't have job security. And, and that, of course, leaves us incredibly vulnerable. Uh, the many universities across the South, for instance, and essentially one-party authoritarian states, are like universities mm -hmm. in authoritarian countries. It's difficult to speak because there are real consequences. So, uh, mm -hmm. so uh, I speak because I can speak. Um, at, you know, I speak, uh, you know, when I came to Yale, I'm like, okay, I'm at Yale. Yale, you know, has done a lot of bad things in the world as a force for elitism. Uh, it's my obligation and responsibility to use my privilege uh, of be having this position to speak my mind. Um, so uh, not all professors are in that position. Uh, the professoriate is a very conservative group. Uh, it is not... Mm -hmm. uh, it is completely, I mean, professors tend to be, you know, no, many of them are not Republicans because the Republican Party has become completely just the party of the super, super wealthy, the business elite against the cultural elite. But professors are generally anti-woke. They're largely white men. They're they're defensive of, you know, they're all the sort of resentment of uh, of that, that that comes with is filled. They're worried about being replaced. They're worried that their research will not be centered in in the future, 
So I'm not really sure we want professors out there as a, <laughs> as a force against. I'd like to see professors defend academia, stop the corporatization of academia, stop the stop the uh, the adjunctification of academia. And uh, but um, but professors tend to be, you know, anti-woke conservative uh, elites, many of them. And, uh, you know, I'm an elite myself, quite obviously. So so uh, <laughs> so I'm not sure I'm you know, I'm not sure like a mass wave of professors into the discourse will change much. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, but, you know, when you see saw us include myself included, just accept the adjunct adjunctification of our of our dis of our of our craft, um, which means a lot of people who don't have free speech. Uh, then, uh, then mm -hmm. you know, you, you saw that professors aren't even defending their material class interests, um, right? Yeah. Wow. That that that's it. so it's you, you can't. So there's there are laws and there are certain um, incentivizations for these professors not to do these things. Whether you want to publish articles, you want to. It's like if the more right. outspoken you are, the the harder it is to make a dime, right? Or and you get scrutiny in public. Oh, oh yeah, there's enormous restriction. There, there's the right wing media goes after you. I mean, if yeah. I were tenured, I mean, the right wing media is an enormous. You know, many universities, you have students recording you, ready to turn you in at any moment for your speech. So, uh, so wow. this is this is this is happening. You know, there's there's far right student organizations that are on every campus. I'm not questioning their right to do this. I'm just saying these are facts. So, uh, so they're difficult. It's a difficult free speech environment uh, because of the far right media, because of institutions like campus reform, uh, Turning Points USA, various watch lists that place, place professors on them. So, uh, and then if you're in a state with a, rep a Republican, that a one party authoritarian state as many US states are now, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and teaching at a state university, you know, that's really, really a tremendous risk. And, and you know, even if you're at a private university, private university has donors, the backlash against uh, a lot of professors don't wanna risk that kind that kind of, of backlash. Of course, for right-wing speech, you'll be propped up. People will say, you're a conservative, it's great. You're, I mean, not, not, I mean, for certain kinds of, but, you know, people are looking for outspoken campus conservatives uh, now, um, you know, yeah. uh, and there should be outspoken campus conservatives. There should be outspoken campus everything. But the, from outside, what people see is happening on campus has nothing to do with what's actually happening on campuses. Correct. That that's what bothers me the most. I think hearing adults uh, deliberate about how our education system—it's like, but but you're not in it, and I'm in it, and I'm experiencing quite the opposite. Of there's zero indoctrination. It's just whitewashing of of things that are happening right now. So, well, okay. professor, hopefully more professors like you stay loud throughout these tumultuous times, and let's protect our freedom of speech and our rights while we still have them. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for coming on. It was great to meet you. You too. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to follow and subscribe to the show. Help spread the word about uncovering the truth by giving us a five-star review and sharing the show with a friend. We're available on Apple, YouTube, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening. And as always, I will continue to uncover the truth.
The Uncovering the Truth theme song was created and produced by Pokari.